This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hi, I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of the cultural creeds we take for granted, like that we know really anything about the first human civilizations. Were we featherless bipeds in early days, like lovely, peaceful, polyamorous, matriarchal bonobos? Or were we asshole chimpanzees who did Kramaga and flexed about our all-steak diets and how women are naturally submissive? We don't know. So if you think you have an awesome diet or domestic arrangement or way that's consistent with how humans really are on the ancestral plane before civilization came along, well, guess what? You're making it all up. Sure, eat gnats and aphids only and pray to a thumbtack for all I care. But really, you're not doing it in some special way that humans did it at the dawn of time because nobody knows how humans did it at the dawn of time. It's always chastening to find yourself in thrall to a book that was an instant New York Times bestseller. But just because something's flying off shelves doesn't make it fundamentally uninteresting, or at least not to me. I'm thinking of The Dawn of Everything. This is the new book by David Wengro, a British archaeologist, and David Graeber, an American anthropologist who died in 2020. I'm reading this book through a second time, and I gotta say, I talk about it so much that my family now has a series of jokes about me. They see me as one of those single-theory people who believe something like, he who controls magnesium controls the earth. Sorry, that's an old Matt Groening thing about obsolete academics that I also always quote, so basically I'm repeating myself here too. 
In any case, the dawn of everything has been pulling the pins out of many of the assumptions about early humans that I didn't even know I had. Its deceptively simple thesis is that early humans were not one thing. They didn't have one modus vivendi. They tried a lot of different stuff. And one amazingly cool thing is that it seems that various unearthed civilizations show signs that they knew there were different ways of being, and they devised experiments to see what worked best. Wengro and Graeber also cite records of intellectuals indigenous to what are now called the Americas, who, they argue, introduced Enlightenment ideas to Jesuit missionaries and would-be colonists. Okay, so the showpieces of the so-called Western intellectual tradition, let's call that democracy and the Enlightenment, these things seem to have been co-opted almost entirely from First Nations peoples. So what we think of as Greek and Western could really be indigenous American ideas. So let's just pause and think about that. Anyway, there I go onto Twitter, tweeting about this Dawn of Everything book by two white academics, taking issue with all the dandruff club overmen of the intellectual dark web or whatever, when someone tags my attention to one Paulette Steves. Dr. Steves is an archaeologist, a member of the Cremati tribe, and author of the indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. Her work on the early history of the nations, on the indigenous civilizations of this continent and all their heterogeneity, has pissed people off, blown minds, and restored lost truths to their rightful place in the archaeological canon. And her book is where I think the arguments in the dawn of everything have their rightful beginning. Dr. Steves' book is the culmination of her efforts to rewrite the timeline of when humans first arrived in the Western Hemisphere by synthesizing the findings of archaeological digs from around both continents. She addresses the sidelining of indigenous lives and voices, including her own extraordinary life and voice, by emphasizing the primacy of the Native Americans in the history of humankind. Biggest news of all, she also pushes way, way back the date previously given for the start of human civilizations in the Americas. I'll let her give the numbers, but one big takeaway from her book is that it's possible that people were in the Western Hemisphere more than four times longer than we've thought they were. Dr. Steves, let's jump right in. I'm curious about where your story begins. As a teenager, my mom um, ended up being divorced and being a single parent. And uh, I left home one summer with another girl from a local reservation. We went picking apples in Washington State. And I was only 14 or 13 at the time, I guess. Some people there at the apple farm didn't like that there was two girls by themselves that wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't socialize with them. So they weren't liking us. So, <laughs> so they called the police and the police came and arrested us and brought us back to Canada. They sent me to Willingdon Girls School. So this was a maximum security prison. This was not any kind of school. It wasn't a residential school or reform school. It was a maximum security prison with 14-foot-high fences and barbed wire on top of the fences, and you were continually locked up, you know, usually in a little tiny room. But there was a time where if you behaved really well, they let you live in one of the outside cottages, so you were locked in a, a little bit bigger room, and you would have to walk to the main building um, 
to go do old ladies' hair or do cleaning or, you know, watch a movie. And on every single one of those walks, I ran like crazy and escaped. And then one day they were bringing me back from an escape. <laughs> and uh, they brought me up in the paddy wagon. And it, there was three ladies in the back going to federal prison. And I was just really young. I was maybe 15. I said, I'm going to escape before they can get me booked in. They said, you can't do that. I said, just watch me. I had cowboy boots on. So the police women, one was closing the gate. The other one pulled the paddy wagon up to the building. She opened the door and called my name and I jumped out and hit the ground running. And I could hear the women in the paddy wagon and the girls in the building saw me and knew it was me just screaming my name and run, run, run. And I ran up the hill and across the field and got over that fence, ripped up my legs on the barbed wire and stood on the other side and said, I'm not coming back. Holy shit is the only thing I can think to say. I mean, just astounding. You know, being being an Indigenous person, we're, we know our history and we're told our history from a young age. I had to hide that history. Uh, my mom had had two children taken away from her in the 40s by the government in Canada. And uh, we've never been able to find those children. So growing up, we were sworn to silence about our culture and, and our background and where we were from. But in uh, 1988, I was leaving Lillooet, British Columbia, where I grew up. And it was a difficult time. I was a single parent with three kids. And I went to talk to an elder there, Leonard Sampson, um, just to get his counsel. And he said what I was going through was difficult. But he said he talked with the local elders and they knew that I had an important job to do that in the future would really help Indian people. He said, not just our people, Indian people everywhere. And at the time, I was a single parent, just getting divorced, three kids, a truck and 26 cents. And I thought, what am I going to do? But he told me, he said, what you're going through now is training to learn to deal with difficult situations, because what you're going to do in the future is not only important, it's going to be a lot more difficult. And I had no clue what he was alluding to, but he seemed to know. And 25 years later, when I was receiving my PhD, I went, oh, this is what he meant. I just have to rewrite Indigenous history. <laughs> wow. So you're one of the few archaeologists who uses Indigenous method and theory. What is Indigenous method and theory? Well, Indigenous method and theory... I'm, I'm critically reading all of the science that's been done and the history of American archaeology, and I'm telling the truth about it. When, you, when you're growing up in a, in a non-Native or non-Indigenous world, you're taught that if you listen to your dreams or your thoughts or voices, you're crazy. Hmm. And I had to learn, and, and it began with listening to that elder I spoke to in 1988, to listen and I, and I really worked hard at relearning to listen to ancestors and creator and what it was I had been given to do. So that's a part of Indigenous method and theory is learning as an Indigenous person to listen to those messages, to those dreams, and to think beyond what it is people want you to know. What else have you had to relearn while studying such a long-established subject? So there's a lot of ways of making understandings of oral traditions, right? So Indigenous people spoke in metaphors that are so complex that most non-Indigenous scholars don't understand them. I've had to learn, relearn how to understand the metaphors in a lot of oral traditions. And how do I link that to archaeology sites? Well, there's a site on the Palm de Terre River 
where the Osage had an oral tradition about a battle between the beasts. It wasn't safe to go on the land. There were too many big beasts. And then the beasts one day had a battle and a lot of them killed each other. And so then the Osage were thankful. So they brought out of respect offerings for the beast and they burned their carcasses, right? Hmm. So what do archaeologists find in that site years later? They find thousands of bones where there was a battle between mammoths and mastodons and they were after the battle burnt. And there's all kinds of stone tools. So right there, you're linking an oral tradition to the recording of an archaeological site. And you can say that yes. oral tradition tells the story of that, how that archaeological site was made. And so for me, it's been a learning experience also of, of like I say, understanding oral traditions and mm-hmm. trusting the voices that I hear and what I've been told by elders and just weaving mm-hmm. it all together. So I want to get to the substance of that work by asking you kind of the, the North Star question for your work, which is, what do we get wrong about when humans first came to North America? I don't know that you get anything wrong, but what you get is a colonial Western version of Indigenous history. One of the hardest chapters of my book that I really didn't like writing, I I loved writing most of it, but the chapter on going through and unpacking the racism and colonial history of American anthropology and archaeology. And people aren't, aren't taught to question Uh, what they're reading or what they're taught in different courses in school. They're taught that this is a fact and this is truth, but it's not truth. It's conjecture. So when I began to ask the question, okay, I, I know that our oral traditions say that we have been here since time immemorial, much longer than the, the Western archaeologist state. So let me look into that. Alex Herlishka was the first uh, anthropologist at the Smithsonian, the physics physical anthropologist, he argued that the Indians had only been here 3,000 years based on one set of remains he'd looked at from Alaska. That's not data and that's not science. That's conjecture and that's racism. And uh, Jesse Figgins from the Denver Museum found the site at Clovis, New Mexico, where there was a stone tool embedded in the rib of a bison that had been extinct for over 10,000 years. And he had to argue for a few years to get people to believe him. You know, and he had to go back and re-excavate and find more. And it wasn't the first Clovis point that was found in the Americas, but it was the first one that was found and kept in the rib of the bison it was found in to show that it had people had been here at least 10,000 years. That was in the late 1920s. And since then, it's expanded to maybe 12 to 14,000 years at the most. And people are still creating all these scenarios where, oh, they stayed uh, up, up on the Bering Land Bridge for 15,000 years. And so I started looking into it and I asked Dr. Steve Holan at the Denver Museum, did he know any sites, the archaeology sites that were older than 10,000 years in North America? And he sent me a list of 10 sites. So I took those 10 sites that Dr. Holan gave me and I started doing research and reading the papers. And in two weeks, I had over 500 sites that predated 11,200 years before present, so predated Clovis. And that really told me there was a lot of evidence, um, all kinds of evidence for people being here much earlier. Coming up after the break. So when did people come to the Americas? This is a big year. 
The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to This is Critical. My guest today is Dr. Paulette Steves. She's an indigenous archaeologist and author of The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, a book which argues that people have been in the Americas for far longer than the 12,000 years or so that most archaeologists cite. What do you think is the best explanation for how people came to be in the Americas? I think there's more than one explanation. This landmass of North and South America is, is minimally one-third of the global landmass. It has huge amounts of coastline. You have times when there were glaciers, which meant that the landmass was much bigger because the water was sucked up in glaciers. So the whole continental shelf was dry land, right? You have humans were using boats to cross large bodies of water. So I think the story is not a simple story. I think there are many stories of how people came and left from the Americas for thousands of years. So I want to get the numbers straight here, just so that listeners can understand the span of history we're talking about. So Clovis, which is a certain archaeological discovery made in 1920s, okay, so 100 years ago, um, and that dated the appearance of humans on the North and South American continents, And people talk about pre-Clovis and post-Clovis. So let's put it at 10 or 11,000 years with Clovis. What are your observations that correct this in numbers? So there's hundreds of sites that predate Clovis. And if you look at my book or my website, you look at the maps, those sites are scattered throughout North and South America from the east to the west coast and the north to the south. It takes a long time for people to cover those distances when you're trying not to get trampled by mammoths and you're learning the land. And, you know, Joanna Nicholas is a linguist and she had really taken a lot of flack for this, but she wrote that there are so many Uh, indigenous languages in the Americas, they would have taken between 35 and 70,000 years to develop. North and South America have more than half of all the language families in the entire world. There are 15 alone just in California. And so that shows a long time of development uh, for people being here, right? And she said it takes like 6,000 years for a new language to branch off even within a language family. That's astounding. What an interesting way, non-archaeological, right, anthropological way of measuring how, how long there have been humans here. Do you put, begin to put it at 30, 35,000 years as a hypothesis? 
probably over 140,000 years. And we have some sites that date to 200,000 years. But if you look at the rest of the world, so early humans left Africa and they walked over 14,000 kilometers. I'm just looking into how long that might have taken them. And they were in northern China over 2 million years ago. So there's a number of sites in northern China and Russia and Siberia, and the ones in China date to 2 million years. So we're supposed to believe that early humans walked out of Africa all around the world, got to northern China, and then stopped. Just put their bags down and said that we're not moving. Yeah, we're not going any farther. Uh, That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so there's there's a denial, too, of a lot of these sites in Siberia. Oh, they're not good sites, or they're not this, or they're not that. Um, Yeah, they certainly are. And the thing, the good thing is there's more sites being found all the time. So there's more and more data. So I'm starting a new project now to look at what was the land like. So prior to the last glacial maximum in North America, we know that the land was like a subtropical forest all the way up across Beringia. We know that, you know, camels originated in the Americas, horses, saber-toothed cats originated in the Americas. If they were going to migrate, they needed food and sustenance. And the land had that. So they did migrate across the Bering landmass to go to the east. There was food, right? The saber-toothed mm. maybe followed mm-hmm. camels or something else they ate. So we know that, that our four-legged relations give us a lot of evidence about the possible times of migrations across that landmass. Mm-hmm. So I'm just starting to build a database of when there were glaciers and when there were not from over 2 million years ago to present to look at when was it possible for people and mammals to cross between the continents. This is what we should be thinking in archaeology. Hmm. What are the possibilities? Our job Hmm. as archaeologists is to understand human history, not to deny it and viciously attack people who say that, you know, it's longer in the Americas than you say. That doesn't Mm -hmm. make any sense. And if you look at the rest of human evolution, it doesn't make any sense that people wouldn't have got here till in the middle of the last glaciation. So I just want to clarify, if Clovis puts the beginning of human civilization, human culture on this landmass to 11,000 years ago, you are adjusting that upward maybe as much as 200,000 years ago. I mean, this is just such an extraordinary uh, set of discoveries. What are some of the sites that most interest you? I mean, which one really blew your mind? Oh, there's a number of sites. The Topper site in Southwood, Georgia is very interesting because it's had so much work done on it. Alan Goodyear was working on that site and he decided to dig a little deeper than Clovis. And what he found was pre-Clovis artifacts. And it was a problem for him that they dated to around 50,000 years before present. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's been a number of people do a lot of work on that site. And Douglas Sane was a graduate student who did this amazing, monstrous dissertation, um, which I'm jealous of because I wasn't allowed to have more than 200 pages. But he did this incredible (laughs) dissertation. He looked at the usewear on those pre-Clovis tools And he decided they had been used to cut grasses and to cut other things, and they were human-made tools. And so this site is constantly ignored. It's 50,000 years old. We have found uh, tools off the East Coast on the Outer Banks that are very similar to tools that are found in southern France that date to around 22,000, 23,000 years ago. So this is in latter-day Carolinas. Yeah, and now they've done more work there. They're finding more and more sites that date to in the 20 to 1,000 years and more. 
And so how do you tell if those tools, I mean, was it because it was used for what we recognize as agriculture? You can look at tools in a number of ways, but when you put them under a microscope, you can see usware on them. So there's a solid set of data that shows this is what the marks you see when a tool has been used to cut bone or when it's been used to cut grass and there's a different polish on it. And so you can tell that it's a human-made tool and you can often tell what it's been used for. Hmm. So, so that some people have um, defined really amazing ways of understanding artifacts that we find in the ground. Now they're coming up with science that finds DNA in the soil. And so they just found one that Denisovians previous bathroom area where they found quite a bit of Denisovian DNA in the soil because people had urinated there for a long time in a cave. Where is the Denisovian site? That's in um, Georgia, Russia, Georgia area. Georgia. So Denisovian's very, 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 very old. But we're coming up now with these sciences. Modern science is amazing that really assist us in our work as archaeologists and scientists to understand the human past. One of the pieces of this that interests me is that while many of us have been worried about a climate apocalypse, a sort of end of time, end of human civilization, end of the biosphere, one of the ways that the indigenous intellectual tradition methods have come into the conversation about the climate and some kind of apocalypse is by acknowledging this immensely interesting idea that the native apocalypse has already happened. Is this something that that interests you, a way of a way of talking about history that sees the apocalypse in the rearview mirror in the genocide? Yeah, the the genocide was so long and ongoing and you know in many places mm. it's still ongoing. So, mm. you know, I have grandmothers that were all in residential schools. I never got to meet any of my grandparents. Um intergenerational trauma is is just really hard for a lot of communities. But every day I'm in meetings or talking to people who are still facing colonial practices, right? And still Mm -hmm. paying the price. So you look at a lot of communities, they don't have clean water here in Canada, the schools on First Nations don't get the same funding as schools off of First Nations. Colonization is ongoing. And the one thing that Mm. people can do is to learn to decolonize their own lines. One One of the things that I say creator brought this word to me, but a word came to me one day, pyroepistemology. So pyro, fire technology, is how indigenous people used fire to take care of the land. So when the land becomes overgrown, you burn it and you make space for the sunlight to get in and for new new mm. life to grow, right? Mm. We need to do that in academia. So my indigenous method mm. in theory is pyroepistemology. A fire-driven way of knowing, something like that. We need that. to burn those books that talk about us as weary Indians, you know, a thousand years ago. We need to get rid of all of that dehumanizing talk, and we need to recognize Indigenous people's human rights to being recognized as civilized human beings who have been here for hundreds of thousands of years, right? We need to clean that, that academic space and make room for a growth of new discussions and new literature that tell the truth about Indigenous people. Coming up after the break, how could Dr. Steves' theory possibly be wrong? (laughs) 
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to This is Critical. My guest today is Dr. Paulette Steves, an indigenous archaeologist and author of The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere. Dr. Steves is trying to upend the conventional teachings of when people came to the Americas by featuring archaeological evidence from more than 100,000 years ago. As you might expect, with a theory that flies in the face of a field's previously accepted teachings, Dr. Steves has her detractors, who primarily disagree with the dates she assigns to her sites. One archaeologist, quoted in a profile of Steves, dismissed her claims as absurd. What do you think, I gotta ask, is the strongest argument against the, your theory of these this pre-Clovis civilization, way pre-Clovis civilization, and why is that argument wrong? There isn't one. Like I say, <laughs> it's conjecture. So when, when archaeologists call out a site and say it's not a legitimate site, they imagine floods, they imagine uh, contamination, they imagine all kinds of things. A lot of the people that say these sites are legitimate They've never been to the site, they've never studied the collections, and maybe they've never even thoroughly read the papers. And so mm. it's just been a knee-jerk reaction to deny any site older than Clovis for a long time because that was the only safe thing to do. So the, Lewis Leakey was called a crazy old man because he worked on a site in California, the Calico site, and he said it was over 200,000 years old, right? A number of other people lost their funding one named Bell lost his job at the Museum of Man in Ottawa because he said a site in Ontario was, was older than Clovis. That's not science, right? That's racism. Yeah. Why would it be so offensive, even given racism, to understand that there had been pre-Clovis human cultures on the continent? Well, the people that are are perpetrating the violence, the people that for a long time have denied we have been early, here earlier are the people that wrote the history. They are the people mm -hmm. that live on the stolen lands of the indigenous people. They are the people that continue to teach from textbooks that dehumanize indigenous people. So as a graduate student, and this was in 2009 or 10, I was required to read the textbook for the professor whose class I was being a uh, student assistant in, right, as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading the textbook and I come across a paragraph and it says, it's talking about artifacts. It said an artifact could be a beautiful 20,000-year-old spear point from France, or it could be an indistinguishable flake some weary Indian chucked out in a Mississippi cornfield a thousand years ago. 
So what are you teaching, you know, first year archaeology students? That, that there's a weary Indian that chucked out an indistinguishable flake. But if you look in France, it's 20,000 years old and it's beautiful. So I brought it up to the professor and he kind of went through the roof. So the people that defend this claim that we're um, all Asians from Asia who just got here recently are the ones who wrote this mm -hmm. history. They're defending their, their academic territory, their income, mm -hmm. their job security, and the stolen land they live on. You know, if there was more and more indigenous people here and our identities weren't erased, we'd look like we were intelligent humans that had great civilizations. And yeah. anthropology had began teaching about indigenous people in a way that is so dehumanizing and erases our identity and our links to the land and our humanities that it's, it's painfully obvious um, and it's well documented. So in other words, if the hegemonic academic Academy acknowledged how long indigenous peoples had been on the continent, they would then be forced to recognize the claim that humans, certain humans, including in indigenous descendants, have on the land. Is that right? Not just claims to our time here, claims to the land, claims yeah. to our history, claims to the artifacts, claims to the human remains. Uh -huh. So this uh -huh. is one thing that archaeology has been very much against, is repatriation. And as an undergraduate, um, I got lucky to work with Carrie Wilson from the Quapaw tribe, and they'd been trying to reclaim over 500 sets of human remains that were found in Arkansas, where they know those were definitely Quapaw homelands and Quapaw villages. And the museums and universities were refusing. So I applied for and got um, an honors grant as a student, and I worked with a DNA lab in California, a well-known DNA lab. And what we did was the Quapaw thought if we can prove through DNA that these are our ancestors, they'll have to give them back, right? And, and two weeks after the first results of my work came through, the Quapaw reburied 500 ancestors. So that really taught me right then about the power of archeology, span and we just had to learn to do it in a way that it, that it was benefited our communities. This seems to be part of your effort to, I think, to decolonize archaeology. Do I have that right? That the whole practice needs to be transformed. The method, the theory, and the practice of archaeology right. needs transformation. Archaeology, for the Americas at least, has a long embedded practice of um, racism, of conjecture, and of not telling the truth. So archeology span really needs a strong wake up call to start yeah. teaching the truth. And, and some of those uh, faculty that teach in archeology span have gotten a hold of me and um, you know, asked me a lot of questions and like, how do they start understanding? Well, you know what? We're all, we all have PhDs. We know how to learn, we know how to study. If you wanna yeah. understand about indigenous history of the area that you teach in, read about it, learn about it. You know, I've, I'm always being asked to give give classes to faculty on how to decolonize their curriculum and how to indigenize it. And I, you know, at first I gave a few classes and then I said, you know, why am I doing this? I have to do my own research. These guys all got PhDs. They can go learn the same way anybody does, right? They can go meet their local First Nations or Native American community and ask them, what do we need to understand to acknowledge your community in what we teach? 
working in a field where even factual discoveries about ancient history are politicized must be maddening. Well, I I don't let the anger get to me. I focus on the work yeah. and I know that creator has given me a lot of work to do and I run as fast <laughs> as I can every day just to keep up to that work and and I pay attention to listening to what it is I was meant to do and I'm always reflecting on what that elder told me in 1988. Oh my gosh, they knew I had a job to do and this is it. I'll share another story with you. My adult daughter went to a young woman's meeting in Northern BC and there's a lot of high suicide rates and a lot of social and political disparities within indigenous communities. And there's a lot of loss of hope. So when you go through colonization and you go through genocide, of course you lose hope. What, what culture wouldn't lose hope, right? But uh, my daughter went to this meeting and every girl in the circle was supposed to share one thing that gave her hope for the future for their people. And she said this one girl's face just lit up and she got real excited and she was talking about this archaeologist in the States who said we'd been here over 50,000 years and that gave her hope that we would get our, you know, our identity, our humanity and our history back. And my daughter said, tee hee hee, I didn't tell her it was my mom. (laughs) (laughs) She should have. But you know, that I, I had really had this focus on how do we bring hope to our communities, to all these young people that are so sad right now. You know, they're suffering under intergenerational impacts of colonization and being dehumanized for so long. Well, reclaiming our history is just one small flame in that fire. It takes a lot of fires to to heal such a huge community of people after a genocide, but each flame adds to that fire. That's it for this week's show. If you want to learn more about Dr. Steves' work, check out her website, tipdba.com. There you can find the database of the archaeological sites she mentioned on the show. And make sure you don't miss next week's episode of This is Critical. It's about hard drugs. The specific topic is ketamine. And you can make sure you don't miss it by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and rave about it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at Page88 and at This Critical Pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. 
Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.